Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So what's it like living in the future? What do you mean living in the future? Come on, you're getting your internet from the stars. Yeah, now I'm just returned back to the 21st century. <laughs> I've been living in the dark ages for the last couple of, well, 10 years now? Oh, yeah. It's been a decade since we moved out to the out into the sticks, and when I moved out, one of the things that was mandatory was there was some kind of broadband internet access, and, and that meant shooting beams of Wi-Fi to a tower a couple kilometers away, and it was never very good. It was acceptable, and we could live with it, but it was never great. Now, thanks to our uh, savior, Elon, we have our star pigeons up in space and beaming the internets down to us. We're on Starlink now at home, and it is glorious. Even the early days in this beta period is unbelievable how effective it is. In fact, the slowest speeds we've had so far are three times faster than the fastest speeds our previous ISP was willing to give us. So it's made a huge difference for us. Yeah, your current downlink speed on average is about double what I'm I'm getting in the city with our plan. I mean, <laughs> certainly the speed of the pipe coming in here at the studio is yes. an order of magnitude <laughs> uh, larger, but just on, on our normal run-of-the-mill pedestrian sort of plan, you're getting very fast basically return trip to outer space yeah. that, that I'm getting through hard-wired connections yeah. here on Earth. It is really remarkable when you think about it. So the slowest speeds we're getting sort of 35 or 40 megabit down, and at our fastest speeds that I've seen, we're getting 220, 250 down, which is pretty remarkable. I think on average, we're probably seeing somewhere in the 80 to 150 range. But Elon's already said that by the end of the year, he intends to have enough satellites up that anybody who's in their service area will be able to get uh, 300 megabit down. And their short-term goal is gigabit service, and their long-term goal is actually 10 gigabit service. So it would not shock me in a few years' time if Starlink is actually faster than what's available from various wired services in certain places. Certainly Canada has never been, our ISPs have never been on the forefront of, of getting us the fastest speeds possible. If you live in Seoul, South Korea, you don't need Starlink. But if you live in Ottawa, <laughs> Starlink may actually be a, the better option versus a lot of the wired services that are out there eventually. This is the, the sort of technology where I, I can see certain nations leapfrogging other Western nations in terms of, of the technology adoption and the, the speed of the service that they'll be receiving in due course. Absolutely. And we did see that with some of the other technologies that are out there, especially with cellular services. Mm -hmm. With countries like India, India never bothered trying to wire up the country. It was never going to be feasible for them to do it. And in fact, they leapfrogged us in a lot of ways in terms of their connectivity in rural areas because they focused so much on getting cellular service out there. Large parts of Africa are the same way. The Middle East, their cell service is so superior to what we have here. And that's what people are relying on for their daily internet access. And so they haven't relied on those cables that somebody pulled across the, the nation 100 years ago and all the problems that come across with that. It really is one of those technologies that has the ability to really level up a country. And we're fortunate that we happen to be in a, a place where the beta is taking place. And uh, I, the second I got that email, I, I stopped cutting up the roast that I was carving and went upstairs and immediately signed on, paid my fee to get the initial hardware and everything like that, 
I am so pleased with it. I was so happy to make the phone call to my ISP and say, sorry, but you're not going to cut it anymore. Yeah, if cell plans weren't so expensive, uh, there was a time there where, where I almost would have just switched to going all cellular from my house as opposed to, to copper because I was getting faster speeds on LTE than I, I was getting through the, the hardwired connection to our house. We just need fiber optics. <laughs> That's what we need. If we lived in a first world nation, then we'd actually have access to unlimited LTE. But And our friends that are in the UK right now, whenever they share their cell phone plan rates and how much data they get on them, I am I just weep. And they're paying a fraction of what we are per month and they get unlimited, like proper unlimited data plans. And uh, yeah, it's so frustrating when, when I look at what how much we pay. I think Canada is one of the top five most expensive countries in the world for cell plans. And I know that a lot of the companies complain, oh, well, you know, everybody is, is so spread out. It's like, no, we actually have a very high population density right along the U.S. border. Obviously, there's outliers. There's people that are in the middle of nowhere and in this country. But the vast majority of the population is living within 100 miles of the U.S. border. And certainly not the entire border. We're concentrated in very specific areas. And we actually have a higher population density than a lot of European countries do. So it's there's no reason why we couldn't get faster speeds. It's just a, there's been no incentive for our existing monopoly providers to actually provide that. Yes, all that to say, thank you, Elon. I'm very happy. Every time, nearly every week at this point, there's a, a new Starlink rocket that's going up with 60 more satellites in it. And uh, absolutely love seeing that. If you're ever curious to see the constellation of satellites that's up there, you can go to satellitemap.space and it will actually show you in real time where all of the Starlink satellites are. It's quite a remarkable thing to watch. And in fact, you can see the string of satellites that have just been put up because it takes several weeks before they get dispersed into their normal orbit. You can actually see what's going on with them. It's a lot of fun to be able to watch. And so you can see the, the coverage circles that they give you and just how much density they have around a particular area. That's really neat. I wasn't aware of that. I'll have to, to check that out. Yeah. And in a, more of a, an earthbound constellation, a little bit of follow-up from episode 76. We talked a, a little bit about these 3D renditions in cubes of crystal that are, are done with lasers and, and how companies like Rolex and, and Omega are leveraging this to market their crystals mm -hmm. as being genuine. I saw a neat video recently, and uh, it turns out this technique actually has a name, which we did not use in that episode, which is subsurface laser engraving. And uh, we'll link this video up in the, the show notes, and it actually gives a, a nice little walkthrough of the technology behind it, what's actually taking place. And as we had surmised when we were talking, mm -hmm. it is actually little micro-fractures that are happening. That's why you can't have straight lines. You have to have these little points. So that is a neat application of laser technology, which we've been playing around with a little bit more here uh, with Project Minotaur as well. Yeah, we've had a chance to experiment a little bit with the laser technology that we happen to have here in the studio. We have both a CO2 laser and a 1,064 nanometer fiber laser. That allows us, the fiber laser in particular, allows us to engrave in metal easily and to do uh, ablation engraving. And that allows us to do deep engraving on a piece. And in fact, we've experimented a little bit this week with a few dial designs. And I've managed to actually engrave out all of the parts that we didn't want and started to experiment with 
filling it in with different things. And it's nice to be able to do that and see the results of it because it's, it is really remarkable and just how good you can get the results out of that sort of laser ablation, deep engraving. And one of the things I love about the laser too is just how quickly you can prototype and iterate. We went from idea to actually having something in hand and it had to have been less than half an hour. Oh yeah. From going, just whipping something up on the computer very quickly, hashing it out, having it laser engraved, throwing it in the sandblaster and then polishing the yeah. surface very quickly. Yeah, it was, it was really neat to to see that. And, and now you know, a few iterations later, it's, it's looking pretty sharp. Yeah, it, this is one of the real advantages of having all of these technologies in-house. And obviously you can send all this stuff out to be done, right? You can have it, you have something 3D printed somewhere else, or you can have it cast somewhere else, or you can have it laser engraved somewhere else. But the ability to do it here really does mean that you can see very quickly whether it's working or not and decide whether to abandon it or not. Right? We had just tried a, a dial design that I had been playing with for, for one of my own watches. And we threw it under the laser engraver, and 20 minutes later, we had something that it was very obvious that it was going to be something we should pursue in terms of what it was going to look like and how good it was going to look. And then you went home later that day and whipped up a couple of, of unique dials for this particular project, sent them to me this morning. And, you know, before lunchtime, I had two dials already laser engraved, the paint drying in the in the recess, and at least a rough idea of what this dial would look like. It certainly isn't good enough that we could put it into a watch, but it is absolutely good enough that we can look at it and say, yes, this is something that we want to pursue and make sure that we get it looking as good as possible. And we can dial in the details of the laser engraving and make sure that it, it goes deep enough and make sure that the edges are sharp enough and things like that. But now we know that, yes, this is actually worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. And you used Simple's Black 3.0 as the paint you referred to there offhand. And this is my first time seeing the, the Black 3.0 in, in the metal, so to speak. <laughs> or not seeing it, since it's, a, uh, it's absorbing so much light. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we're not Moser. We don't have access to Vanta Black. We have to go with the, the poor man's Vanta Black. And Stuart Simple's Black 3.0 paint is an incredibly rich, very matte black paint. And it is remarkable just how much light it sucks up. When we when I was showing Rich of this dial earlier, we we're standing with the sun behind us coming through the shop window, and there is no reflection coming off of that black paint. It's quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, and as I understand it, he actually has some carbon nanotubes laced into the the acrylic there to, to okay. pull it off. So it is very similar to what Moser's doing there with their Vanta Black. But they do indeed have exclusive rights to using Vanta Black. <laughs> as, as to the best of my knowledge, uh, I think there's one or two other companies that may have been able uh, to slip through there at, at various points in, in the past. And mm-hmm. that may have had to do with different iterations of Vanta Black itself. But yeah, no no other big name out there has been using it. And and this is significantly less expensive, I imagine, than well, getting I'm Vanta sure. Black applied. <laughs> no, and, and the reality is, too, like Vanta Black is in incredibly fragile. Like it is a, a really neat, fantastic technology, but I, you look at it the the wrong way, <laughs> and it'll start to fall apart. And, and the same is true here with Black 3.0. But the way in which we've actually designed this dial, it serves up a, a fair amount of protection to yeah. that surface treatment itself, and in order to enable it to maintain that incredibly rich matte black. The thing I'm concerned about and, and what we'll need to experiment with over the next little bit is to see how durable it is and how much it's actually going to stay bound to the metal surface. It does get flaky when it dries, 
And I've noticed that when, if you're looking on the bottle or whatever, it, it comes off in these these little chips, these little flakes that, that come off because it doesn't have a lot of binder in it. It's That's one of the remarkable things about it is that just how little binder is actually in this paint and still able to actually adhere to anything. So I'm curious to see, are we going to run into any issues with with it just losing adhesion from the metal? And so we'll need to experiment with it. I'll probably put it in a, a dial or something like that that we can wear as a daily wear watch for a couple of months just to see what actually happens with it. As you bang it, as you, you walk around and do your normal thing, you put it down on the table and it knocks it a bit. Are we going to have these little flakes of paint coming off in there? And uh, because obviously with this extremely matte black, you don't want to go off and lacquer it, right? A lot of dials are lacquered in order to help maintain their look and stabilize the, the actual dial. Uh, that's what a lot of people who are doing engine turn dials are doing. They're putting down a lacquer on it. A lot of other techniques are doing that as well, whether you're printing on it or whatever first. But if you put any kind of lacquer on here, it's immediately going to be reflective. And while it will still look okay and you'll get a lot of contrast versus the silver color of the metal underneath it, it won't look anywhere near as good as this black 3.0 without anything on top of it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like there's some accelerated aging tests that so will have to be conducted on this. Yeah, yeah. maybe we need to build a little vibrating unit or something to simulate just a, the daily wear of a watch bouncing around over a couple of years and see what happens with it. Yeah, this is by no means uh, a surface treatment we are 100% set on. It's just it's one mm. of several options we, we've thrown around. But as it stands right now, I certainly like the, the way it's turned out and the look of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I knew that it was going to have some possibilities, and I knew that it was there was certainly, having seen some of it being used, at, you know, Tamara's used it a couple of times on, on a few little projects just to see what it looks like. And it certainly had some possibilities, and I knew that it was going to be as a sort of a front runner for, for, particular, for this particular treatment. But now seeing it in person and seeing it in the metal, it really does jump out at you. And it is creepy not getting any light reflecting, or certainly nowhere near as much light as the base metal around it. That polished metal beside it, it really does overpower the little light that the black 3.0 is reflecting. So it, it really is remarkable just seeing this thing. Mm-hmm. And speaking of HMOser and C and their, their Vanto Black, they have released a, a final upgrade to their <laughs> Apple Watch Troll. Oh, I love this watch. Yeah, I love what Moser's doing here. I'm an Apple Watch wearer. I'm I'm happy with mine. I think it's it may be the best tool watch I've ever worn. It's it certainly has a lot of advantages. And the fact that they're doing this watch is just brilliant. And again, the Vanta Black is really nice. It looks incredibly sexy. I imagine it must look amazing in person. I would never want to actually service this watch. There's no way you could ever convince me to pull that movement out and, and handle that dial at all. That just terrifies me. But the the fact that they've added the the loading dial of it at the sub-second is just that brilliant. I, I am so happy that they did that. It's It looks great. And yeah, I love this watch. Yeah, it really is a, a delightful touch. Uh, the only issue I, I would take with this piece is that they're calling it the final upgrade. I, I would have preferred they, they go with final update, given that the movement itself is not really an upgrade over a previous version that featured a minute repeater. Uh, and yes. I actually would have loved to have, have seen this sub-second dial concept that looks like a, a loading spinner mm-hmm. off of a Macintosh or an iPad or an Apple Watch. And uh, I had put that on the, the same sort of dial they had for their repeater because mm. the repeater had no hands. Yes. So you would have just had this deep, dark, black... <laughs> 
face with nothing on it apart from that loading, that loading spinner. spinner. Yeah, that would have been good. And that, that, that would have been a, a nice little touch to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, this I think is going to be more appealing than that minute repeater was. I, I don't know how many of those minute repeaters they made. I, I don't think there would have been very many just based on how complicated minute repeaters are to make in in general. So I, I suspect they they probably did this so that it would be a bit easier to sell all fifty of them. But it's uh, and and maybe the price is a little more reasonable than they would have been as minute repeaters. Oh, yeah, absolutely more reasonable, and I don't take any issue with them <laughs> pursuing this route in, in terms of making it a more accessible time base it's just yeah. just the, the naming convention if it was final update yeah totally fine yeah, it's, 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 it's not an upgrade yeah it, but that's the thing it's it, the upgrade is coming it's still waiting <laughs> i see <laughs> this is one big troll it really is one big troll i've actually had a couple of ideas of doing something similar with a disc underneath the dial for the subsecond as well and uh, I'm glad to see somebody doing it. This is different than what I would, what I had planned on doing, and what I may still do in the future. But it is nice to see somebody doing it and and seeing that it actually does work and that it it can be a, a viable, a viable alternative to having a hand and a and a subdial like that. Mm-hmm. And having seen some close-ups of that subdial as well, you can actually see some mm-hmm. of the the carbon nanotubes. You're not seeing the carbon nanotubes themselves. Instead, what you're seeing is a, an aggregation of a number of carbon nanotubes all sticking up together in this little crystallized form, kind mm. of poking out and protruding over those openings for that that disc. But it just gives you a real sense of just how fragile that, yeah. that coating is. You don't want to apply any pressure. Absolutely down not. At all. Yeah, I, I would love to own this watch, and I don't think I'd ever buy it. I, I just it's it is just so fragile, and uh, that dial it just terrifies me. Just like how a Pijorn can never <laughs> afford. A tourbillon, not I shouldn't say never, could not afford a tourbillon at the, the tender young age of 25. He decided to make his own. You, you <laughs> could just you know, go ahead and make your own Apple Watch troll and uh-huh. wear that around. You've uh-huh. got a, a couple Apple Watch cases. I, I do have a couple of old cases. I should I should maybe maybe do a custom movement for, for one of those. We have seen those in the past. A mm-hmm. bit more follow-up from a, a previous episode. Actually, just last episode, I would mentioned that the waiting list for Dufour's Simplicity <laughs> was uh, up over 10,000. There has been another update on that, and according to, to Claude Sphere, who, who is handling all the, the sales side of, of things, he's quoted in the, the New York Times recently as saying that waiting list is now an order of magnitude larger and is sitting at over 155,000 people for the yeah. remaining 10 watches. Yeah, with 155,000 people, John, I, I don't think my name getting pulled from that list. I don't oh, did did you actually name. submit I your name? I put my name down. <laughs> <laughs> but I had the chances of my name getting pulled from that list would be absolutely none. Maybe I should put my name in just in case, because it sounds like there are a lot of other people on that list who would be happy to buy my name for it, happy to buy my spot from, from me if I needed to. You don't want to be that good, though. No, yeah. you're right. I don't. I'm sure that there are plenty of people in there who are purely doing this for the speculation of how much that watch is going to be worth on the uh, secondary market. But as I've said before, congratulations to Philippe. Uh, it's amazing that, that an independent watchmaker has gotten to that point where he has this kind of draw. And I have my hat's off to him. It's, it really is remarkable to see. Mm, absolutely. If Claude wants to send a few of those emails to uh, some of the rest of us who are independent watchmakers, then I'm sure that we'd be happy to, to field some of those emails. Speaking of which, your conversation with Fifth Wrist Radio was recently released. Yeah. Uh, finally. <laughs> finally. <laughs> it was not released in time for, for the show notes. 
for for last episode as, as we had surmised, but uh, I, I did sneak it in there about a, a week after the fact. And you had a, a nice long conversation about your journey as a pen maker and, and journey into watchmaking mm-hmm. and now stepping out into the world of independent watchmaking. It was an interesting show. Yeah, it was it was nice to talk to Roman and Adam. We've sat here talking about this stuff every usually every couple of weeks for the last three and a half years and we get to talk about whatever we want but sometimes it's nice to have somebody different with a different mindset who doesn't already know you asking you questions adam obviously had a lot of questions about you know my journey in teaching as well so we talked a lot about my how much time and energy i spend actually trying to teach what i do so it's nice to have that different perspective and to have other people asking you questions because it gets you thinking in ways that you may not necessarily be thinking about or you may not want to talk about normally on your own so that was nice to be able to to be able to talk about that. And in terms of, you know, learning new things and not asking questions, I didn't even know to ask. Rubina surprised me. I can vividly remember the first time that my tongue tasted Rubina. Yeah. And yeah, I, I had no idea. You were, I don't know if you're importing it, buying it here in Canada, still enjoying it. Do, here's my question for you now, yes. which uh, you guys didn't cover in the show. Do you drink your Rubina hot or cold? Okay, so first off, for our North American listeners who have no idea what the heck Ravina is, it's a black currant cordial that you can purchase in every other part of the world except for North America quite easily. And typically it's purchased as a concentrate that you then mix up with water to whatever your preferred strength and intensity is. And if you go into uh, most civilized countries, you could walk into a corner store and actually buy it as a bottle off of the shelf just like you can a Coke or an orange juice or something like that. So for for the the listeners who are not in North America, they all know exactly what we're talking about. But North Americans are are not as well versed in this as the rest of the world. So you can purchase it here in in Canada. And uh, certainly most supermarkets nowadays have it in usually in a a different section. It's is sometimes it's in a ethnic foods section, which I always find hilarious. It's a a nice drink. I got addicted to it as a kid traveling over to the UK and, and visiting family over there. So um, anytime I can get a hold of it, I usually do. Yeah, the first time I had ever had it was also in the, the UK. Mm. I was doing some orienteering at night in the middle of winter for the Duke of Edinburgh in East Sussex. And I just finished my route and rendezvous with some other people and just all frigid, chilled to the bone, <laughs> soaking wet. And someone pulled out a thermos of mm. Rubina that had been mixed with boiled water. Okay. And... Drinking that was absolutely <laughs> glorious in the moment. Yeah. It, it felt like being able to to drink a, a nice warm berry pie, mm-hmm. and um, it's just such a such a vivid memory for me. Yeah, that and then of course I encountered Rubina a number of other times after that mm-hmm. there in the the UK. But I can't say I have encountered it since. If you ever want any, I I usually have some on hand here in the studio. To know, <laughs> anytime I want to drink some pie, I'll that's just right. Head yeah. over to the studio. I have to say, it is a crime that we do not get very many blackcurrant-flavored things here in North America. And and I understand at one point there was a concern because I think there was some kind of a disease that was being carried by blackcurrants and was actually killing off some particular pine trees. And pine trees were one of the main resources of North America, so killing off pine trees was a bad thing. But uh, we now understand exactly what was going on, and there's no good reason that we don't grow blackcurrants here in North America. And frankly, we can get blank current flavored stuff over here, but North Americans just are not attuned to that flavor. So I, I can understand why it's not particularly popular yet. Even more of a crime, I, I think, is just how poorly represented 
the flavor of black currant is here mm. in North America because my first experience with it as a, a kid was actually in dextrose tablet form. Mm-hmm. So like a, a black currant flavored dextrose. <laughs> and after yeah. tasting that, I never wanted anything black currant <laughs> ever again in, yeah. in my life. But my, my mind was changed by Rubina. One, one thing you divulged in that episode of, of Fifth Wrist Radio that I think quickly changed, <laughs> perhaps within hours uh, of the episode yeah. actually being released, was, was your, your target price for these initial timepieces. That episode was recorded in mid-December, and, and I've made a few changes to what I'm planning on doing for these watches. One of the things I've come to realize was that what I had intended to do for those watches wasn't really economically feasible, particularly the amount of work that I wanted to put into the dials. And I was needing to heavily compromise what I was trying to do with them. And also, I really was not all that pleased with using an ETA 7001. It's a perfectly good movement. I'm happy with the way that it performs, but it's a very tiny movement. It looked ridiculous inside of the case that's there. And the sub-second dial was ridiculously proportioned for such a large watch. If you were making a 34-millimeter watch, then the sub-second dial is in a perfect location, and it's going to look really good. But the reality is that for the 42-millimeter and 39-millimeter watches that I'm working on, that sub-second dial was just ridiculous where it was placed. So that was something that had always bothered me. And then on top of that, it's it's a movement that, that a lot of people are using. It isn't really a good way of distinguishing the watch from what other people are doing. Uh, it doesn't have all the features in it that I want. And so I decided to start looking around for another movement. And that's also changed what what I think I'm going to end up charging for this watch. The I've been able to get in touch with the folks at Swartzet Chen, and I've started a conversation with them. They're lovely people and incredibly generous with their time. That's been a, an eye-opening experience, chatting with them about what's available and what a more refined movement can give me. And one of the things that I've come to realize with after having a couple of conversations with them is that while this movement is is providing me with a few more things that than what the 7001 was right now, it's going to offer me a huge number of options down the road. So the first thing is that this is going to still have a sub-second dial on it, but it's in a more appropriate place. And so I can I can create a more appropriately sized sub-second dial for these watches, which is great. The other thing is that I'm going to go for one with a power reserve indicator. As far as I know, I can't get that on any of the Atom movements out of the box. I don't think any of them have a power reserve indicator. So that's a nice little touch that this has, you know, to it. And then on top of that, it, this has a significantly longer power reserve, 96-hour power reserve, and a huge amount of torque. So if in the future I want to add some interesting complications to it, this has more than enough power to be able to power the future things that I want to do with it. And I do have some ideas, things that I'd love to do with a watch. And hopefully that's something that I can actually add on to this movement later on. And I don't need to then go off and find a different movement or you know, I don't have to go and completely build it from scratch myself. I can take this existing movement and add my own complications onto it. So there's a lot of advantages there. And this, again, the people at Swartz HN, they're incredibly generous with their time and knowledge and they have the experience to be able to help me with those sorts of things going forward. If I want to be able to add uh, a free-sprung balance to this, they have the knowledge and the experience to be able to do that. I can get that from them. I don't have to wonder, oh, what's that going to take? Or do I have to find a different movement? Or do I have to do it myself? That's an option that they have available. 
all of that to say, I am going to have to charge more than what I was originally going to do. But I think in the end, it will create a better watch that is more representative of what I'm interested in making. Mm -hmm. And frankly, more representative of what I plan on making going forward. And I think that's a that's an important thing to do in this case. I could certainly do the cheaper watch with fewer options and a less interesting dial. But I don't think that's particularly interesting for me. And I don't think it's particularly interesting for my clients. I'm not too sad that, that I've had to change things up, but it does, uh, it does mean a little bit of a change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets you in on the, the ground floor. Mm -hmm. Whereas working with Schwartz ATN in this way, you're able to start a few levels up. Yeah, it get, you know, the, the Etta's get you on the ground floor, but the problem is that it doesn't get you much further above the ground floor than that. And unless you want to go down the road of, let's say, like Richard Hobring, where he's torn apart a 7750 and completely modified it to have the features that he wants in it. Obviously, a 7750 has a huge amount of power in there because it was designed as a chronograph, and he's taken the chronograph out of most of his watches, and that gives him a really stable, very powerful base to be able to work from. If you're willing to do that sort of thing, then that's great. But if you want a movement that you can drop into a, a watch and not have to do that kind of work, then Edit doesn't really give you those options. And then the other nice thing about working with somebody like Swartz Chen is that I can decide how much of the work I want to do versus them. So I've decided that I'm going to be doing all of the finishing on the movement. Uh, they're not going to be finishing the movement for me. If I wanted to, I could have them do a lot of that work or all of that work for me and finish it to whatever level I wanted. But in this case, I felt that it was important for me to do that work and to actually get my hands on the movement and do what I want to do and put my signature into that watch in ways other than just the dial in case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're kind of going back to the, the old school days and, and ordering an abash rather than a, a finished right. movement. So this, this sort of thing that the likes of Patek Philippe, Fashion Constantine, Audemars Piguet were ordering from Jeju Lecouth. Mm -hmm. And they were getting these very rough, fresh from the, the machines sort of movement blanks and all the, the gears and everything else that they, they needed. And then the actual finishing and the, getting them to time and, and all that uh, was done in-house at the these larger, now more renowned brands, although Jeju Lecoud has, has done a good job uh, of rising up in its own right from the shadow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is more like the traditional Abosh system of taking a watch and, and building it. And I'm not just taking parts that I'm ordering from a catalog or that I'm ordering from a specialist uh, supplier and, and assembling all of this. I feel that it's important that I actually get my hands on as much of this watch as I can and still make it reasonable. I, I would love to go down the route that the Christian's go, going with his watches or that Roger's going with his watches and be able to make all of the, the watch myself. But the reality right now is that it's just not feasible for me to do, and I, it may never be. But this gets me closer to the quality of watch that I'm actually interested in making and also making something that's different. Uh, there, there are plenty of people out there that are making lower-end watches with these common movements in them. And that's fine. There's a, there is certainly a market for it and there's a place for those. But that's not where I'm trying to go. I think I would need to make too many of those watches a year to make a comfortable living and it's just not the direction that I want to go. If I wanted to hire a bunch of employees to, to do that work for me, then that's fine. There's a good business there to be doing that. But I really do want to get my hands on each of these watches. And when somebody meets me at a, at a show or at an event or whatever, and they show me the watch that they're wearing that, that has my name on it, 
I want to be able to say, yeah, I made that watch. I'm my hands were in that watch and are responsible for fabricating it. And this is a way that I can do that and still be happy with what the end result is. And not just in, in terms of, of volume or actually having to hire a bunch of people, but in terms of the the level of fit and finish you're aiming for on the movements. To be able to produce in the sort of volumes you would need to, starting mm-hmm. with something like Aneta 7001, it's just not feasible. It could be made to be feasible, but it is much more of a, a struggle to, to get yeah. there. And I, I think the end result would not be nearly as refined, as you said, as what you're going to be able to achieve here with what you're doing with Schwartz 18. Exactly. And and frankly, one of the other things that I love about dealing with them is the personal touch of dealing with the people at the company. I have zero relationship with Etta. I will never have a relationship with Etta. I could buy... 5,000 movements over the next, you know, 10 years. And I would not have any kind of relationship with that because if I'm only buying 5,000 movements from them, I'm a rounding error in their production numbers. The nice thing about Swartzet Chen, I'm sitting there and having a Zoom call with the CEO of Swartzet Chen, with the head of their sales, with the head of their technical department. And I'm actually having a face-to-face conversation with the people who are in charge of the business and they know who I am and they're excited to work with me. That is just as important to me as the movement that I'm actually getting out of it. And that's part of the story that's going to be involved here. I can sit down and say, yes, I had this conversation with them. I know what I'm getting. I've worked with them and collaborated with them. It's not just something that I'm buying off the shelf and putting into my watch. It's a it's a proper collaboration, which is something that I think is important to me as well. And it's a, it's a collaboration that I'm going to continue to have, hopefully, for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the other brands that Schwartz Etienne has worked with, you can see all the various ways that this movement has been mm-hmm. finished and all the different guises that, that it can take on. It's yep. a, a really adaptable mechanism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm curious myself, I haven't had hands-on time with any of Schwartz Etienne's stuff. I can't speak to too much of the engineering from a, a first-hand perspective. I do know a watchmaker who helped them with the development of their hairspring, and I know another watchmaker who helped them with developing a date complication, and that date complication <laughs> was was axed and actually never made it into production. So it is good to know, too, that they're willing to leave things on the cutting room floor. Sure. And uh, that they're not going to push things into production. That yeah. is going to be a, an experiment within the market. But the modularity of it and, and just how much you can change the look of it is fantastic. And, you know, part of that is because of the fact that they're making it all themselves. They're making every part of that watch movement themselves. They don't have outside suppliers that are supplying them with their hairsprings. They don't have outside suppliers that are making some component of this for them. They are making it all themselves. And they've been doing that for a long time. Swartz Chen has been around for, I think, 150 years. And that shows in the work that they're doing and the knowledge that they have. This isn't somebody just, you know, knocking together a movement and not really understanding what's going on or how the market works or how this industry works. They have been in this industry for a long time. And they actually know what they're doing. They do it all. And that's great. It really is nice. They do also make their own watches, which is also nice because it means that they have experience making cases and dials and hands and all of those things that go into finishing a product as well. They're not just supplying a small part of it. So there, there are a lot of advantages to working with people like this. And, and it really is nice to have that sort of personal 
interaction with the people that are doing this work and that are making the decisions as to where they go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a, a very real sense that they're the zhuzhuk of yesteryear, and yeah. that they're just quietly, diligently mm-hmm. working behind the scenes, but are, are now coming more more to light, more to the forefront, releasing their, their own timepieces while continuing to serve so much of, of the rest of the industry. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in seeing what some of these movements look like and just what they can do with them, Peter Speak has uh, a couple of really good teardowns of the Swartzichen watches. One that I think he collaborated with them on last year, as well as uh, a few of their other watches up on the Naked Watchmaker. So uh, certainly go and take take a look at that if you're curious to see what they look like. Uh, This is going to be a double-barreled mechanical watch with uh, hand-wound. There's no automatic in it, although you can actually do that. You can replace one of the barrels with a micro rotor if you want to do that. Uh, but I like the double barrel. I like the extra power reserve. I love the extra torque that it gives you just because it does mean that you've got some options later on when it comes to saying, all right, I want to do something that requires a lot of power all of a sudden. And that double barrel really does give you that option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they announced their Project Phoenix collaboration there towards mm-hmm. the, the end of 2020. Yeah. And uh, apparently that is a, a project that started around the same time as Project Minotaur. We had no idea that they were also working on a, a mythical beast of a watch. Yeah. Now, clearly, given their their track records and resources at their disposal, they were much quicker to market. But it, it is neat to, to see the, the fruit of, the, of that collaboration. And they really do go into great detail on it there on, on the Naked Watchmaker. And some really beautiful handwork on there in terms of the engraving on the dial mm-hmm. and the grand foot enamel yeah. and, and all the rest. Yeah, it really is a remarkable looking watch. Mm-hmm. I'd say the only downside that I have with going this route versus using the Edis 7001s is the amount of time it takes to get the movements. From the time that I order the movements, it's going to take them six months to produce them for me. And that lead time is, it's frustrating in a lot of ways because it means that it does slow me down in terms of how fast I can actually get them in clients' hands after I start taking pre-orders for them. But it also means that I know that these are being made for me. I could go out and buy these movements, as I said, if I was buying just out of 7,000 ones, I could just order a bunch of them up from Perrin or somebody like that and, and have them in my hands in a few weeks. That months-long delay is certainly frustrating, but I think it's worth it in the end, and I think that I'll be much happier with the end result. It took a while for me to get to that point and to understand that decision, but I think that it was uh, it's certainly been worthwhile. And frankly, I should have gone down this route a year ago. I should have started researching this and going down that route and actually figuring out this is where I really needed to be. And obviously, it, you meet different people, you have different conversations, you have to take that journey in the way that you're going to. And I'm just glad that I got to it before I got somewhere that I was unhappy with what I was doing. And I think I probably would have been unhappy with the other watches. Hmm. But even if you had released a few first, there, there was no reason not yep. to change course. I mean, as certainly seems to have followed on a, a very similar <laughs> path to you. He, he has released pieces with both the 7001 as well as a, a bespoke caliber from Schwartz Etienne. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, he's certainly gone down that road. So uh, if you want to see what uh, what Ming is doing with his uh, Schwartz Etienne watches, I know that uh, those are out in the world now. And mm. although I don't think any of them are available, I think he's uh, he's all sold out. So he can't too buy much one. bodes well for you. Well, well we can hope. <laughs> in another vein of independent watchmaking, you recently sent me a little video clip of a moon phase display from Konstantin Chaikin. Which I had not encountered before. Yeah, I, I follow Constantine on on Instagram, and one of the things I love about him is that he's very prolific on Instagram. 
So along with being a prolific watch and clock maker, he's very good at, at doing the um, the Instagram thing. And so you get to see the watches, you know, as they're being made sometimes. And uh, you often get a firsthand glimpse of some of them. And yeah, this watch was neat. I I've hadn't seen anybody treating a moon phase like this. It's a slightly different take on it. Normally when you see uh, the moon phase, the actual moon disc is being hidden behind the dial. And then parts of it are revealed throughout the month to show you the phase of the moon that it's in. In this case, they've actually created a heart-shaped sub-dial, if you will, on the watch. And then a ring that rotates around the center. And as it rotates it, you can see more or less of the, the sub-dial underneath it to show you the phase of the moon that it's in. I thought it was a, a great way of, of showing off the moon phase and not hiding the moon in behind the main disc as you often see. I think it's a really nice way of displaying this, and I don't think I've ever seen anybody do something like this. No, I, I have not either. And actually, the first thing it brought to mind for me was David Smith's implementation of the moon phase display for the mm. Apple Watch, because mm -hmm. that's one of the first times I had seen a, a more realistic representation of the moon and, and how it actually looks in the sky, Yes, as opposed to, to more of a, a disorientated facsimile of it on most watch dials. I don't think this particular implementation by Chaikin accurately mimics the orientation uh, of the moon in the sky. It does very accurately reflect the shape of it as it runs its course around mm -hmm. the, the dial. So it's a, a really neat way to, to display it. Very clever. I'd be curious to know how he came across this sort of concept or, or how it came to him. I would imagine there's some centuries-old astronomy textbook somewhere or, or manuscript that, that probably references something like this. But yeah, it, it is not something I, I had seen before. And it's a very clever use of a, a sort of a cam shape yeah. that, that is very often used to, to mimic or, or reflect the motions of heavenly bodies. Mm -hmm. And Chaikin, this is obviously not the first time that he has had some kind of a, a unique or interesting take on how to tell time or how to show time. He's had some great watches out there, everything from the Joker, and and uh, he's done a, a Mars time watch. He's done all sorts of great things. He's done a couple of interesting clocks as well that are super complicated and tell time and, and dates and things like that in, in rather unique ways. So uh, it wasn't shocked at all that's who it was that had made this watch. Mm -hmm. I was scrolling through Instagram and that caught my attention. I'm like, oh, who did that? Oh, okay, yes, that's, that doesn't surprise me that he did that. Yeah, it's worth checking out. It's, I just wish that it wasn't covered in diamonds. I'm not a fan of watches with diamonds on it. You know, it's probably out of the out of my price range anyways, but it would be nice to see a version of this without a pile of diamonds on it. It's, you know, fit for the wife of a Russian czar. Uh, that's true. That's true. And that's not me. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly agree with you. If, if you're in the market for an expensive and playful mechanical timepiece, uh, Chaikin definitely has you well covered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you mentioned you at first encountered that particular Chaikin timepiece on the Instagrams. Something else interesting happened to you on, on Instagram recently. You know, it's funny when when you've got a bunch of people following you. I don't have a huge number of people following me, but I, I still have enough people that are in this world and the watch world and the maker world and the various nerds of the world following me that when you need to find out something, oftentimes just using the hive mind of Instagram and your followers can get you what you need. One of the things that I have in the shop, it's a tool I purchased a bunch of years ago from a gentleman in Montreal, and I had never found anybody who had one with it. It's a copy drill that Pauselux made back in the 70s. 
And these drills are designed uh, very similar to a something like a pantograph where you can make a copy of something. In this case, instead of machining out a copy like a pantograph or even um, changing the dimensions of it, in this case, it does a one-to-one copy of where the holes on something are. So you can have a master plate, and that master plate could be a watch movement that you already uh, have, and it will do a one-to-one copy of where the holes are in the target plate that you've mounted on it. And it's a really handy thing to be able to very quickly drill out all of the holes that you need in a movement. If you've watched any of our Project Minotaur videos on uh, YouTube, then you've seen us using various methods with the uh, watchmaker's lathe and with the uh, Cameron drill press to actually drill out the bridges and uh, drill the both the pinholes and the screw holes, the clearance holes for the screws on those on those plates. And that's certainly a very legitimate way of doing it, but it's time consuming. And if you want to make more than one of something, it just takes too long to do that if you're if you want to do it. The nice thing about these Poslux copy drills is that you can very quickly take that that master plate and transfer those holes over. So it's a great little tool. Really happy that I have it. Uh, but it's in rough shape. It's uh, It was used primarily by a woodworker in his shop. And so it's pretty gummed up. And it's also nearly 50 years old at this point. All of us that are getting on to that age, we need a little bit of TLC to, to keep us running properly. I was out there looking for more information about it because I didn't have any kind of a manual for this machine. So I posted up a thing online today asking if anybody had seen one or anybody knew anything about the the functions of them and the dials and everything like that. And Ron Landberg on Instagram came back and said, hey, I've got one of these and here's the manual for it. And he photographed the manual and emailed it to me. And so now I've got a, an original manual for the thing and I can see what each of these knobs and dials is supposed to do. Some of mine are not working as expected. And so now I can go in and start to fiddle with it and make sure that it's actually doing what it's supposed to do. But Yes, it's nice to have access to the hive mind occasionally to be able to find out that information and get the details that you need. I'm not surprised at all here. It was Ron Landberg who, who was able to get that information for yeah. you. Yeah, I had the, the pleasure of meeting Ron. Got to be close to a, a decade ago now. But uh, he's a good watchmaker in, in his own right. I'm happy to hear he was able to get that for you. Yeah, yeah and it's funny. His is, his is in a similar state of sort of disrepair and needing TLC. And, and of course, like me, I've had mine for five or six years now, I think. And I've never gotten around to getting it up and running, and I'm finally now getting it up and running because, well, I want to be able to use it for a couple of things, like making dials and stuff like that, and being able to do the layout of, of holes for the rivets on the dial plates and things like that. So I, it was important for me to actually get this thing up and running, and so hopefully Ron gets a chance to get his up and running and, and start using it. Big thank you to uh, to Ron for actually getting me that information. It's uh, He's the only other person I've ever come across who actually has one of these. I would surmise that he has very similar intentions for use. <laughs> And I suspect mine may end up getting used for making some bridge plates in the future for, for maybe one or two of our watches. Yeah, I would imagine so. It would certainly come in, in handy for the, the next iteration on this movement that, that would come after Project Minotaur. Yeah, we do want to be able to make some changes to the gear train layout in the next version of this watch. And I think that once we have made a decision as to where that gear train is going to be moved to, it would be nice to be able to create a master plate and then not have to sit there and manually reference the original plate every single time we want to drill out a new one or new bridges or whatever. So 
I, I can see us actually using this in the for future for doing some movement design and some uh, movement drilling. And it's nice to be able to use for not just for doing the initial drilling, but also for countersinking and, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and something that I learned in it is that it can actually be used for simple milling as well if you want to be able to do template template machining with it. There's a lot of neat things that you can do with it, and I'm, I'm very happy that I can I can do that now. Well, that would make a lot of sense because it is effectively a very small pantograph. So if you put the, the right end mill on mm-hmm. there, and you can just follow around with your feeler and then do some milling. Yeah, there, it's a one-to-one pantograph. And in fact, one of the features that, that Rich and I had discovered as we were playing around with switches and whatnot today was that there's an option for it to uh, keep the the drill bit down in the down position. And I'm like, why would you do this? It doesn't make sense that you've, you'd keep the drill bit down like that for any length of time. But if you're using it as a mill, then it makes total sense that you would want to keep that mill in the down position and be able to actually keep it running there. So uh, a lot of neat things you can do with it. I don't know that I would replace my pantograph with this. I think having the one-to-one of copy nature of this is not nearly as effective as the reduction of a pantograph. You're going to get more accurate copying with the, with the panto, and and you're going to get greater error reduction because you are doing that that reduction. So I don't know that I would give up my pantograph for this, but it's a nice feature to have. Now using the the pantograph for drilling operations would be another thing. I suppose you you could do as it well. Is, it yeah. is certainly doable. Uh, the only thing that's annoying is the down feed on the cutter is a little more annoying. It's not quite as intuitive, and it it's not. You don't have nearly as much control of it as you do with this. Also, the other big thing is that you don't have the speed in the spindle that this mm-hmm. does. This will do, I think, up to 17,000 RPM, which is significant. And when you're, you know, as we've discussed before, when you're using really tiny drill bits, you really do need speed in that drill bit. At that center of that drill bit, or even at the outside of the drill bit, it's barely moving if you've got it going at two or 3,000 RPM. And unfortunately, that's the limitation of my pantograph is that I think I can get it up to three, maybe 4,000 RPM. And it's just too slow for these tiny little drill bits. But certainly something larger, I would consider drilling with it and it would it would work. Or even just using it as a spot drill maybe and then taking it over to the Cameron drill press and actually using the Cameron to do the final drilling operations. Having heard stories of, of these things in, in action, I can imagine once you get rolling with it, you crank out a, a lot of pre-drilled plates for bridges and main plates incredibly quickly. That was what they were intended for. And in fact, I think Pozlex, they when they originally created them, they were designed for doing drilling out PCBs, printed circuit boards, as well as watch movements. And this was before CNC machines were commonly available for either industry. And you needed to have somebody standing there and, and manually drilling them out. And so within a few minutes, you could have somebody who was a skilled operator in this actually drilling out a complete movement, including all of the through holes, including all of the countersinking, and you would very quickly get through that stage of the operation. And that really is what it was designed for, was pre-CNC days. How do you efficiently drill out the movements that you need and get those holes accurately in place? And that's exactly what this is for. So I'm certainly going to be putting it to use for exactly what it was intended to be used for. And that's, that is speeding up that process and retaining that, that accuracy. Again, it's a automated machine in some ways because you get the down feed of the drill is being automated through a switch. But at the same time, it's still something where I have to manually move everything around to, to actually select which hole I want to drill in and whatnot. Given how hard it was for you to, to dig up information 
on this tool. Well, I shouldn't say that, given how easy it, it was <laughs> once you actually put a call out there. I, I just yeah. mean in terms of your own general searching mm-hmm. around on the internet for information on this, given how much of a challenge that was for you. Do you foresee this being uh, the subject of another one of your videos? Uh, absolutely. I, there are obviously not a lot of these out there, or if they are, people are not talking about them. So it's certainly something that I wouldn't mind uh, doing a video on. And once I get it up and running, maybe once I've cleaned mine off a little bit since it's pretty filthy, I will actually get it up and running and, and do a video on it and show it in in action so that we can see exactly what's going on with it because it is a remarkable little machine. And frankly, it, it makes sense. It's a there. It's an obvious tool to create when you have this problem. And speaking of problem, you had a problem with the machine. I, I noticed the side of it was <laughs> open and its guts were, were hanging out there for, for a number of months as, as you zeroed in on uh, how to address that. And I imagine that's probably not something you're going to delve into when you do a video on this, but just for posterity and for anyone else who might run into a similar issue, what was it that, that went wrong and, and how did you resolve it? This machine is not light. It, it looks like something that should maybe weigh 30 or 40 pounds, but it's over 100 pounds. And I suspect that when it was being moved around, it was probably dropped a very short distance. It has a It had a glass fuse in the body of it, and that glass fuse broke. And so it was not functioning because the the fuse had broken. So instead of trying to find whatever bizarre size and amperage fuse that was required in there, I just replaced it with a small breaker uh, that I picked up from uh, DigiKey and soldered it in in place of the the fuse holder. And I'm sure that will last me forever. There's no good reason for one of those breakers to uh, to go on me. So as long as my my horrible soldering skills Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.